Hello, I'm Douglas Murray. Welcome to Uncancelled History. Today, I'm joined by Jonathan Horne to talk about Robert E. Lee. Jonathan Horne is an author and former White House presidential speechwriter. His Robert E. Lee biography, The Man Who Would Not Be Washington, was a Washington Post bestseller. Jonathan Horne, thank you so much for being with me. Thanks for having me. Your biography of Robert E. Lee came out in 2015. Um, what else happened that year in relation to Lee? Well, that was the year when the first debate or the modern debate over what to do with Confederate statues began. It started after the shooting, uh, terrible shooting in Charleston, South Carolina. My book had come out a few months before then, and there were some questions about these statues, but it did not dominate the book tour the way it would have dominated had it come out a few months later. And that question has continued to hover over Robert E. Lee ever since. And I, you might say that, in fact, all discussion of Robert E. Lee has kicked off the modern wave of statue toppling that has begun in America and eventually spread around the world. He has been, let's say, the, 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 the starting point yes. for the statue toppling. Right. And in fact, if you go back to 2017 with former President Donald Trump, he predicted that if you took down Robert E. Lee's statue, you would end up taking down George Washington's statue. And it, it, at the time, it almost seemed like a ludicrous prediction. There, was a, there seemed to be clear lines that could be drawn. Robert E. Lee had fought against his country. George Washington had created the country. But of course, there were people who were determined to make this prophecy come true, as so often happened. And the ridiculous came to pass, and in fact, people did start going after George Washington as well, to the extent that there was a proposal I saw to, for re-examining how to repurpose the Washington Monument in Washington, D.C. So that is yeah. where things ended up. It turned out that no one knew where the brakes were on the thing. Um, let's start at the very beginning then. Uh, who was Robert E. Lee? Well, Robert E. Lee was probably the, the, one of the most famous soldiers of the Civil War. Uh, but before that, uh, to just give a little bit of context, he was the son of a man named Henry Lighthorse Harry Lee, who had served as one of George Washington's cavalry commanders during the Revolution. That's where he earned that nickname, Lighthorse. Uh, but what Harry Lee is most famous for is what he did after the war, what he did when George Washington died. It was Harry Lee who memorialized George Washington as first in war, first in peace, and first in the hearts of his countrymen. And during Robert E. Lee's life, everybody knew that his father had written those words. Now, Robert E. Lee had made his own connections to George Washington. He married the daughter of George Washington's adopted son at, on June 30th, 1831. And when the eve of, on the eve of the Civil War, people see tremendous connect, uh, symbolism in these connections. They see Robert E. Lee as the son of George Washington's most famous eulogist, and they see him as the son-in-law of George Washington's adopted son. Um, and on the eve of the Civil War, people will appeal to George Washington on either, both sides of the Union and say, will you lead the main army being raised to crush secession? Mm. Um, and so Lee faces this choice between the Union and his native state of Virginia. What was the world that Robert E. Lee grew up in? What was it like? 
That's a great question. We tend to think of Robert E. Lee as being from one of these great families, and he was from a great, great family. The Lee family was one of the most prominent families in Virginia. Uh, if you go down way toward the Chesapeake Bay on the Potomac River, you'll come to a great mansion called uh, uh, Stratford Hall, and that was built by Robert E. Lee's great-great-uncle, a man named Thomas Lee, who sired two signers of the Declaration of Independence, the only person who can say he, he was that good of a father. Um, but, uh, and that's actually where Robert E. Lee was born. But right. he did not live there for long because I told you that Harry Lee was one of George Washington's most fam famous cavalry commanders and he worshiped George Washington. But he couldn't imitate what he knew was George Washington's greatest virtue, self-control. Harry Lee bet all of his money on land and he lost, he lost really badly. And so Robert E. Lee spends his childhood in Alexandria, Virginia, much closer uh, to the nation's capital. In fact, it was actually part of the District of Columbia back during Robert E. Lee's childhood. Um, and he has to live in houses belonging to friends and relatives who take pity on his poor mother because Robert E. Lee's father has gone off into exile in the Caribbean. So Robert E. Lee doesn't have the rich, wealthy childhood we sometimes imagine that he had. He grew up very much under difficult circumstances uh, he was very much, he, he, he talks about having been a housekeeper for his mother as her devoted nurse. Uh, in fact, people describe him as anything but a boy, as someone who was always doing things for other people. And, and he became very fond of talking about himself as if he could never have his own way. It was always about doing things for someone else's way. So he was a member of the Nouveau Poor in America. <laughs> the, right. He was, he, in some sense, it was land rich, but cash poor. But Robert E. Lee at this point was both. And what kind of education did he have? Well, so Robert E. Lee was educated at first in, in, the, in Alexandria, but he ends up going to West Point uh, against his mother's wishes, I might add, um, who did not want him to go to West Point because she said, how can I get by without my Robert? Uh, but he goes to West Point. He is tremendously successful at West Point. He graduates famously second in his class. Uh, with one of the best all-time records. The person who graduates first fades into history. Um, but, uh, and uh, so Robert E. Lee graduates from West Point as an engineer, and he enters the Army Corps of Engineers, which at that time was the most prestigious branch of the Army and where you wanted to go if you had done well at West Point. And that was where he knew he would be making his career, in the military. Correct. He wanted to be, he, he, in a sense, he thought this was a stable career for him. He had seen his his father lose all of his money. This was a way he could have a, a stable career in the army, and it became, a, it became his career. And he spent a long time in somewhat of obscurity in the military, and that begins to change with the Mexican-American War, where Robert E. Lee really stands out. So this is where he makes his name. Uh, tell us, just remind us a bit about that conflict. Right. Well, in the Mexican-American War, as, uh, what happens essentially is a general named Winfield Scott will lead an American army from Veracruz, Mexico, to Mexico City. Um, and it's a very successful campaign. Uh, and Robert E. Lee plays an essential role. He, the Mexican army is continually outflanked by Winfield Scott's army on the path uh, to Mexico City. And Robert E. Lee plays an important role because he is essentially finding routes that the army can travel to get around the flank of the Mexican army and people begin to notice he has an unusual skill. He's able to see things in the land that other people aren't able to see. He's able to see paths around the army. And Winfield Scott, 
who at this time is really America's top soldier and will be on the eve of the Civil War as well, says that Robert E. Lee is the very best soldier he has ever seen in the field. At what point does Robert E. Lee's name start to get to a sort of wider audience? Uh, obviously, the, the Mexican-American War makes him famous among his, his uh, contemporaries in the army. Uh, what about further afield in, in, in the United States than was? That's a great point, and I'm glad you said it like that, because he was famous in army circles. He wasn't generally famous. In fact, his name was left out of many accounts of a campaign. If you had to be an army insider to know that there was this talented person who Winfield Scott was really leaning on. Um, and in some sense, it's a raid that takes place in a place called Harper's Ferry. Uh, there is an abolitionist who leads a group in 1859, who leads a group of abolitionists across the Potomac River. His name is John Brown. He seizes a federal armory and he takes a group of hostages, including, I might add, a great-grandnephew of George Washington. And he takes a sword that had belonged to George Washington, and John Brown holds the sword in his hand while he is holding the federal armory. And what is he doing? Well, he's hoping to put together an army to, that will basically snowball in size and end slavery in the South. So who does the federal government call out to reassert federal control of this armory? Well, Lieutenant Colonel Robert E. Lee. And that was a logical choice at that time because Robert E. Lee was living near Washington. Um, Which year is this again? This Where? is 1859. 1859. So this is right on the eve of the Civil War. And Lee performs quite well at Harper's Ferry. And it's not the hardest job looking back on it, but he performs well. He restores federal control of the armory. He apprehends John Brown. And he tends to say this isn't that big of a deal in his mind that John Brown was a crazy fanatic and he had, his plot had no chance of success. Uh, but other people see something else. They see on both sides, they see this as heralding a greater conflict and they end up being correct, of course, because John Brown's raid doesn't just add another laurel to Robert E. Lee's resume. It also heralds the coming of the American Civil War. Uh, sketch some of that out for us. Um that at the same time as Robert E. Lee is making his name, bigger tectonic shifts are happening in America. Right. The, the whole ground is moving under the country. Um, show us perhaps what that was like. What, what was it, what was the pre-Civil War period like? Let me, because we were talking about the Mexican-American War, let's go back to that for a moment. What is the result of the war? Well, the result of the war is that America will add territory. Mm. And the question immediately becomes, what do we do with this territory? Is it gonna be free territory or slave territory? And it becomes a sectional issue uh, that divides the country. And this has become a pattern for the United States. Whenever new territory is brought into the country, immediately the question of slavery comes up. Will it be free? Will it be slave? And it's that debate that sort of brings this, the coming of the Civil War, that sort of indicates its coming. And Robert E. Lee himself is, at the time of John Brown's raid, very involved in the institution of slavery for the very first time. And I, if we have, to, I would like to talk mm. about Robert E. Lee's attitude towards slavery. Let's do that. Let, just before that, just go back yes. to Washington himself, because I think it's important that, uh, that the difficult, the, the question of slavery had been there from the start. Right. And... Washington himself had conflicted views on the matter. Right. Well, George Washington, of course, was 
a slaveholder. Um, he had slaves at Mount Vernon. Um, it may interest you to know that most of the slaves at Mount Vernon were not actually his slaves. They belonged to the estate of his wife's first husband. They were the so-called dower slaves. Um, <clears throat> and George Washington, like many of the founding fathers, hoped that somehow slavery would end. They wanted to put slavery on the path to extinction. They didn't know how to get there, mm. but they assumed that somehow this would work out. Uh, George Washington, however, wanted to leave a tidier legacy at Mount Vernon. So he left a will, a famous will, that provided emancipation for his own slaves. But what he couldn't do was emancipate the slaves who belonged to the estate of his wife's first husband. Because those slaves were not his, and they were not in his power to free. He couldn't emancipate them, let alone all of the slaves in America. Right. And so in some way, you can look at Mount Vernon as a microcosm of America because it becomes half slave and half free when George Washington, eventually after George Washington's death, his slaves will become free. The slaves belonging to the estate of his wife's first husband will continue to be slaves. And he says he knows that painful consequences will result from this division, but he doesn't know how to fix it and he can't fix it. So what happens to those slaves? Well, when Martha Washington dies, they are divided among her four grandchildren. And one of those grandchildren is Robert E. Lee's father-in-law, who essentially has grown up at Mount Vernon mm. as George Washington's adopted son. What were the views of Robert E. Lee on slavery? He obviously grew up around it. It was uh, completely in the environment he was in, but do we know what his views were? Right, and that's a good point. First of all, Robert E. Lee and George Washington never knew a world without slavery. I mean, mm. that's an, a critical point. They were, this, the institution of slavery preceded them. It wasn't something that started during their lifetime. They had never known a world without slavery. Now, Robert E. Lee thought slavery was an evil institution, and he uses that word, evil. Now, it may surprise you to know that he actually thought it was worse for whites than for the slaves themselves. Now, that's very difficult for us to understand today, but the best way to understand it is essentially he didn't like being dependent on their labor. Uh, he wanted what he called independence. Um, he hoped for a day that God would eventually end slavery, but it's important to emphasize that he thought slavery was necessary for the time being. He essentially didn't like George Washington, hoped that eventually slavery would end, but saw no way to get there in any so an, an evil, but a necessary evil? A necessary evil in the sense that there was no way to get around it for right now. And he essentially wanted to have as little to do with slavery as possible. He went out of his way to, in a sense, to avoid the institution. But what most entangles him in the institution of slavery, ironically, is his marriage to the daughter of George Washington's adopted son. Because when George Washington's adopted son dies in the year 1857, he leaves a will naming Robert E. Lee as executor of his estate. And that estate still includes slaves who had descended from Mount Vernon. So on the eve of the Civil War, Robert E. Lee is living um, at a place called Arlington, which today we know as Arlington National Cemetery. But back then it was a, a great mansion, which is still there uh, with great columns. It was filled with relics of Mount Vernon. The bed where George Washington had died was in the house. The china they used was George Washington's china. The furniture 
the paintings had come from Mount Vernon, the lantern in the hall, um, and George Wa and Robert E. Lee is living there and managing slaves who, in a sense, George Washington had wanted to free but could not free. And so the unresolved question of slavery is very much one of the legacies that Robert E. Lee indirectly inherits from George Washington. Now, the, the, the Civil War is looming in America. Uh, Lee is living in this position of almost an American aristocrat or a sort of inheritor of a lineage of a kind of going back to the founding of the country. Um, he sees the war coming, first of all. In a sense, it's interesting, if you look back at his letters, um, he doesn't totally see it coming. He, he continues to think there might be some way of avoiding it, which seems perhaps ridiculous to us today because the conflict seems so inevitable, um, especially as we see the, the Democratic Party coming apart on the eve of the election of 1860, and as it becomes clearer that Abraham Lincoln will win the election, but Lee continues to hope that there is some way that war might be avoided. And how does it come about? Well, it does come about that Abraham Lincoln wins election uh, with no votes south uh, in the South, no, seriously, no single vote in the South, and states begin to secede um, from the country. And Robert E. Lee, at this point, is in Texas. He's returned to his um, to his army post in Texas, and so he's very far away from the news. He's, he's, with great difficulty, he's following what's happening. He's really on a remote fort dealing with the, with, uh, with essentially on the wilderness. Um, and he's trying to keep up with events. But what is he doing? Well, he's reading a biography of George Washington, of all things. Hmm. And he concludes that George Washington himself would have opposed secession. Um, and that was no given at the time because people on both sides of the Civil War will try to claim George Washington Everyone for their own. Exactly, exactly. Just like today, how people will make arguments trying to claim Abraham Lincoln on two sides of the same argument. That was George Washington back then. And Southerners will say George Washington was a rebel against the British king, mm. and George Washington was a slaveholder. Uh, and then Northerners will say, no, no, look at George Washington's farewell address. It says, prize the Union above any other allegiance you might have. Now, the uh, ideological battle lines are drawn. The geographic battle lines, the state battle lines are pretty much drawn. But Robert E. Lee, for a moment, straddles the thing. Tell us about that. Yeah, so he's in Texas, and he's, he's, he's following the secession of the country, and there's almost this moment when he's departing Texas, and he's still working for the U.S. Army. He's recalled, I should say, to Washington, D.C. for a meeting with Winfield Scott, and he's leaving Texas just as it becomes known that Texas is seceding from the Union, and Lee's commanding general will essentially surrender the U.S. Army posts to the state of Texas. And there's a question, what would Lee have done? Would Lee, if he had stayed, would he have been willing to surrender? This is a man for whom duty mm. was somewhat of a religion. Would he have been willing to, to go along with this? It's a choice he doesn't ultimately have to make because the decision is made for him. And he'll return to Arlington across the river from Washington. And he's at Arlington as the Lincoln administration is preparing to come in. Um, and he's sort of debating what to do. But in Washington, there are people who are talking about Lee and have plans for Lee. And 
something which I think a lot of people don't realize is that Lee is offered a position that would have changed his own history, Correct. his own reputation. Right, right. And so what happens is Winfield Scott, who, as I told you, was America's leading military figure, is very old by this point. He weighs over 300 pounds. He is in no condition to take the field in the event of war. If the Union is going to have an army to try to stop secession, they're going to need a younger man to command that army in the field. And Winfield Scott is very high on the idea that this should be Robert E. Lee. And he has conveyed this to Abraham Lincoln. Um, and an emissary for, for Abraham Lincoln will actually call Robert E. Lee to the city of Washington for a meeting in April 1861. And this emissary's name is Francis Blair, and he'll meet at the Blair House. And he'll say to Robert E. Lee, will you lead the main Union Army being raised to crush secession? And the country looks to you as the representative of the Washington family. And that was hardly an exaggeration, as I said, because this is the man who was the son of George Washington's most famous eulogist hmm. and the son-in-law of George Washington's adopted child. And now really only one word stands between him and command of an army to save George Washington's union. And he doesn't say the word. No, he doesn't say the word. As he remembers the story, Francis Blair tries in every way to convince him to say yes. He says, as I said, the country looks to you as the representative of the Washington family. And so Robert E. Lee says, well, He's opposed to secession. He says if he could, he would wash his hands of slavery rather than have war. But how can he lift his sword against his native state of Virginia? Now, Virginia hasn't actually seceded yet, but it looks likely that Virginia may secede. Abraham Lincoln has called up troops because the South has fired on Fort Sumter in Charleston Harbor. It looks like war is coming. And Lee says, how can I do that? And Blair family tradition says Lee paused as if searching for some kind of answer. But as Lee told the story, he gave his answer once and at once, no. No matter how much he might oppose secession, no matter how much he might not want this war, he could not go to war against his native state. Give us an idea of how Robert E. Lee's Virginia identity trumped his national identity at that moment. Well, that's a great question, and it's something that people were debating even at the time. People would say, you know, I think it's also important to set the scene here. Robert E. Lee's family has deep connections to the state of Virginia, and back then it is not as clear as it is today. The Civil War, we live in a post-Civil War world where this question has been answered. Mm. Your first loyalty as an American today is without doubt to the federal, to the Union. But back then it wasn't as clear. These questions had not been as perfectly answered. Um, Robert, as Robert E. Lee will say after the war, they were answered by the sword. Yeah. Um, but what's interesting, as I said, is that Robert E. Lee himself believes that secession is illegal. He doesn't believe states have the right to secede. He believes it's essentially revolution. But he believes that Virginia seceding carries him along. And it's very much like Robert E. Lee, as I told you, because I told you earlier that his entire upbringing had sort of reinforced this idea in his head that he could never have his own way. And so it was very much like him to say he had to have Virginia's way at this moment. Um, so he turns down the opportunity to command the Union forces. Yes. But he ends up commanding the Confederate forces. Right, right. So he turns down the offer. 
He sees his mentor, Winfield Scott, who says, Lee, you have made the greatest mistake of your life, but I feared it would be so. And by the way, it's important to note that Winfield Scott himself was a Virginian and he stayed loyal to the Union. So it is a reminder mm. that Lee acted like there were no choices. He only had right. one choice, but other Virginians did make different decisions. And one of them was Winfield Scott. Uh, so Lee returns to Arlington. He rides back across the Potomac. And there on April 20th, 1861, he'll resign his commission in the Union Army after what he calls, after, after what his wife will call the severest struggle of his life. But just three mm. days later, he'll show up in Richmond and accept command of all of Virginia's armed forces. And what happens from then? Well, so then Robert E. Lee, first of all, he's welcomed to Virginia, of course. How else are you going to welcome the son of light horse Harry Lee? Well, you're going to welcome him by saying, we hope the day will come when you are first in war, first in peace, and first in the hearts of your countrymen, just like your father said of George Washington. Um, and so Robert E. Lee is given command of all of Virginia's armed forces, which doesn't last very long because, of course, Virginia will end up joining the Confederacy, and the Confederacy will take control of of Robert E. Lee's forces that he set up in Virginia. Um, and he, so, you know, we have this impression, I think, that Robert E. Lee is immediately successful in the, in the Civil War and everyone else is sort of a bungling fool at the beginning of the war, but Robert E. Lee gets it. And that's not true. Robert E. Lee's first real command is in Western Virginia. And I say Western Virginia, but today we know it as West Virginia. And that's partly because Robert E. Lee's command failed. His, he was sent there to, to try to make sure that Western Virginia did not secede from Virginia. It was full of Union loyalists who didn't want to go along with Virginia's secession. And Robert E. Lee has a battle plan for opposing a Union army in the area, and it's way too complicated. It involves independent columns converging at different moments, and um, nothing goes right. Robert E. Lee comes back from Western Virginia as a failure. The Southern newspapers say Robert E. Lee isn't a real soldier. He's an engineer. He doesn't deserve to have a command. This is a war that requires fighters. And there's also a feeling, which is somewhat true, that Robert E. Lee is not passionate enough about the cause. How on earth does he wrestle his reputation back? This is an early, very early setback in the conflict that could have had right. huge ramifications. Well, there's a couple of things that are happening. First of all, Robert E. Lee will become more committed to the cause. And what will help him become more committed to the cause? Well, one of the first things the Union Army will do after Virginia secedes is they will cross the Potomac River and seize Arlington House, that great house I told you that was filled with George Washington relics. And if you've ever been to Washington, D.C. and you've looked at Arlington, you know exactly why the Union Army had to seize Arlington because if the Confederates had managed to put guns up there, they could have destroyed the city of Washington. Um, so Robert E. Lee essentially becomes the Robert E. Lee that we know from history in 1862. George McClellan, the Union general, is closing in on the city of Richmond. Um, in, uh, and Joseph Johnston, who is the Confederate uh, general who's trying to oppose him, gets shot. Uh, Jefferson Davis, who is the Confederate president, will put Robert E. Lee in command of what's very optimistically called the Army of Northern Virginia. Uh, but this is not an army that's in Northern Virginia right now. They are cowering below the Pamunkey River uh, near Richmond. They're essentially gonna, facing what could become a siege of Richmond. And Robert E. Lee knows that that happens, that eventually it'll just become a question of time and his army will lose. So he goes on the offensive. And this is when the Robert E. Lee that we know from history really takes off. He'll basically 
He'll take, leave a very small part of his army to defend the city of Richmond, and he takes the larger part of his army, and he throws it against McClellan and gets between McClellan and his supply lines and forces McClellan, of course, to go sort of rolling off down uh, the peninsula and forces him away from Richmond. Um, and it's a very terribly bloody campaign, uh, but it succeeds. And then that, of course, launches Robert E. Lee into sort of the most famous battles in American history. It's not a statement on his moral standing or anything else, but a statement, I think, of just a, a, a fact that he has been regarded since as one of America's greatest generals. Right. And that reputation is born really from this moment onwards, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, he, he, he defeats McClellan. Then he's going to de destroy a Union army at the Battle of Second Manassas under General Pope. Then he's going to cross the Potomac River and lead the Union Army into Maryland, which we should talk about, hmm. um, where he, he faces very difficult odds. Essentially, General McClellan is brought back. He actually gets a copy of Robert E. Lee's battle plan. And even then, McClellan is unable to defeat Robert E. Lee. He really has a stalemate with him at the Battle of Antietam, though Robert E. Lee withdraws. And that, of course, will give Abraham Lincoln the excuse to issue the uh, Emancipation Proclamation. Um, but Robert E. Lee then will have some will win will win at Fredericksburg against General Burnside, and in what is Robert E. Lee's most famous battle at the Battle of Chancellorsville, he will divide his army most, multiple times. He will break all the rules of war that we've heard, and he will defeat General Hooker. Now you might say at this moment Robert E. Lee must be feeling pretty good about himself. He's embarrassed all of these Union generals. He just beat General Hooker in 1863 at the Battle of Chancellorsville. He managed to divide his army multiple times. But Robert E. Lee is not happy at all because the Union Army keeps getting away. And he thinks that he needs to destroy the Union Army or have a victory that is so significant that it will have political consequences in the North. We'll get on to the political consequences in a moment, but just, just give us a, an idea of what was it that practically made Lee, such a successful general. What, what, what was it? His leadership of men, his insights into battle strategy. What were the what were the things that made this, this extraordinary career possible? Well, I think you have a couple of things. You have the same skills that he showed in Mexico, the ability to see things in the land that other people couldn't see, and you also have this ability to take the initiative in battle, uh, which sort of goes to Robert E. Lee's philosophy. Um, that the South needed to take the offensive to ha as the best possible defensive. Um, and he's able to, to throw Union generals on their heels, um, despite having smaller numbers, a worse supplied army. Mm. Um, and, and this is morale in the army that he was leading? Well, and initially the morale couldn't have been very good because Robert Lee's first thing he tells when he takes over the um, Army of Northern Virginia is he tells them to start digging. And Southerners don't like digging. That's not work. That's not work that they think they should be doing. And Robert E. Lee basically says, well, that's what the Northern Army did to get this far, to get this close to Richmond. Why is it that we're opposed to work? So dig. And then if you dig and you have good defenses, I can take a large portion of this army and put it on the offensive and hold what I need with a smaller portion of the army in the defensive earthworks we've made. Was he loved by the troops he led? or He was. He became loved. It wasn't immediate. People initially mocked him as Granny Lee, and they had nicknames for him, but they began to see and they began to believe in him. 
And this belief in him became, made them a very powerful army because people trusted in whatever they told him to do. And this really reaches a climax at the Battle of Gettysburg in the sense that Robert E. Lee believes his own men will do almost anything for him. And the men really do believe in Robert E. Lee too. And it's a very powerful relationship. I mean, these are unbelievable. We, we sort of skirt over them slightly, but I mean, these are unbelievably bloody and awful battles, aren't they? I mean, right. the, the gruesomeness of a battlefield at this, this point can, it's quite hard to imagine, isn't it? For the yes. Around. And, you know, and we go back to the Battle of Fredericksburg, where Robert E. Lee basically sees the Union Army throwing themselves against a well-fortified Confederate position. And there's never an easier battle for the Confederate Army. They are just mowing down Union soldiers. And Lee says, you know, it's good that war is so terrible or else we would grow too fond of it. Um, and even then, though, Robert E. Lee, after that battle, isn't satisfied because he does still believe that the numbers ultimately will work against the Confederacy. And you know who else thinks this? Is a man in Washington named Abraham Lincoln. He knows that eventually there's a math to all this and yeah. it's not working in favor of the Confederacy without some larger victory. Politically, what did Lee think could happen if his military successes had carried on? What, what, what was his uh, vision of what would happen to the country? I mean, did he think they'd just succeed in succeeding or? Well, he, I think he essentially believed you would defeat Abraham Lincoln at the ballot box. You'd force a change of public opinion. He understood that this war in a sense was being fueled by public opinion. And if you could have a significant victory in the North um, of a, that would just route the federal army on Northern territory, occupy some major Northern city, have, some, have potentially the fall of Washington, D.C., you can imagine the disaster it would be for Abraham Lincoln. Now, I think today, Robert E. Lee's military reputation is we're, we're talking about him today as, as a general who is well thought of, and that was true for most of the time after the Civil War until the present. But I think in recent years, Lee's military reputation is as low as it's ever been. Now, why is that? Well, it's because people tend to look at the Civil War and say Robert E. Lee's strategy was wrong. He should have simply avoided major battles. He should have simply kept his army together and tired the North out, basically done what did what George Washington did to the British during the American Revolution. Now, Robert E. Lee didn't see the war that way. He believed that time was actually working against the South. He wasn't facing an enemy that was located an ocean away. He was facing an enemy that was only a river away. And he believed that the more time went on, the more forces the Union would be able to bring into the field, the more the Union's industrial might would come into play and the more the Union would shred the South's social order, which, by the way, the Emancipation Proclamation was an important part of. Um, and so he thinks time is working against the South, and the South needs to win quick and needs to produce a victory or because they can't hang in long-term with the North. And that, again, there are people even back then who disagree with that philosophy and say, you know, Northerners can't fight, they can't keep this up. Uh, but Lee never sees it that way. He always has respect for the Northern people. And part of it is he's seen the country. He's traveled previously mm. in his army career. Um, and, you know, I think going back and looking at it, I think he's right. I think he's right. That is, is, is in a sense, what happens. Time does work against the Confederacy. This, in a sense, it's a, it's a race between 
shredding the South's social order and trying to snap the North's political will to fight. And what happens in the end is that the South is shredded. Uh, he, so he knows uh, that he's on a losing side at a certain point. He believes from the very beginning that the odds are enormously stacked against the Confederacy. He's, he, when he shows up in Richmond in 1861, he hears all kinds of people bragging, you know, this war will be over in three weeks or whatever. And his attitude is basically, you don't know what you've gotten yourself into. Um, and if everyone doesn't make absolute sacrifices, we have no chance of winning this conflict. And by the time 1865 rolls around and he does it, the Confederacy ultimately loses, he'll say, well, it's ended just the way I always said it would. Um, and they wouldn't listen to me, but we had to go through all of this. It's a, it's a very almost fatalistic approach. Yes. And of course it's convenient because he hasn't succeeded in winning the war, but it is true if you look back he never at any time acts as if, as if uh, he has this optimistic view of the long-term potential of the Confederacy. Uh, and what, what is the means by which uh, the Confederacy loses? Well, eventually Lincoln finds a general, uh, Ulysses S. Grant, who, does, who eventually will force Lee into exactly what Lee wanted to avoid in 1862, a siege of Petersburg and Richmond. Um, and eventually Lee's lines will, sh will eventually give way, Robert E. Lee will retreat, and Grant's army will essentially cut off his retreat at Appomattox uh, Courthouse. And, um, and, you know, there's a moment there, of course, where Robert E. Lee says, I don't have a military move to make, so I'm going to go see General Grant. It's the only move I can make. But of course, other Confederates say, there is, there is one more move you might make. You might disperse your army and we can carry on fighting a guerrilla struggle against. Why does Lee not, not agree to that? Well, he says essentially that would bring on a conditions of the country that would take generations for America to recover from. You can imagine, we, you've, we've seen in our own lifetime what happens when guerrilla struggles take place. Uh, the South is already destroyed. How would the men feed themselves? They would have to steal and plunder. All types of army discipline would break down. Um, he sees the cause as lost. His duty is to fight until there is no more conventional military move to make. And at that point, he says, there's only one thing left for me to do, and that is to go see General Grant. And he would rather die than have that moment with General Grant. You know, we, we, that was one of the most famous moments in American history. And we see these two figures meet. But Lee would have rather been dead than have to go to that meeting. Um, and, you know, it's, it's such a famous scene. Robert E. Lee shows up. He's wearing his ni nicest uniform. He uh, has a very impressive sword. Grant, of course, has no sword. Grant is in a dusty uniform. Uh, Lee's, Lee's shined his boots. Grant is, you know, covered in mud. And, and in that moment, Grant will be staring at Lee's face, trying to sort of figure out, you know, what is this man thinking? And he has a really hard time reading Lee because Lee has this impassable expression. Uh, but he is touched. I think it's important to say by the terms that Ulysses S. Grant extends at Appomattox, which are essentially that you won't be disturbed if you go home and you, ex and you go on parole, you won't be disturbed, you won't be disturbed. And this is why Robert E. Lee ultimately was never uh, tried for treason. Uh, he, we, we so often say, we, people say, well, why wasn't he just, you know, hanged and why wasn't he indicted for treason? Well, he was indicted for treason, but what stopped that prosecution was Ulysses S. Grant says, I will resign 
from the Union Army if you go forward with this plan to prosecute Robert E. Lee because I gave him my word at Appomattox and he might not have surrendered had uh, I not given him that promise. And then we would have maybe had that guerrilla struggle that they were able to avoid at Appomattox. There seems to be a, an, some important lesson here about um, benevolence in victory uh, and particularly in victory in a, in a civil war. Absolutely. Because the, the total vanquishment and humiliation of one side by the other in a civil war might be completely counterproductive. I think that's right. And, you know, you could think about Abraham Lincoln's inaugural, second inaugural yes. address, with the, those words um, about charity. Um, mm -hmm. And Grant, Grant very much wants to avoid that. And he also tries to ask Lee to do more to help maybe reconcile the country. Now, Lee is very much a soldier. I think this is important to say, and he won't go further than to tell his own army that the war is over and they should go home and be good citizens. He's not gonna make a grand proclamation for the rest of the Confederacy, which still hasn't officially surrendered uh, because Jefferson Davis is the political authority. And those lines were very important to Robert E. Lee throughout his life mm -hmm. as a soldier. He was not a politician. He didn't think particularly highly of politicians. He didn't want to be a politician. And he certainly was, a, was not a politician. So he, he sends the army home. He sends the army home. I think there's, an, there's a feeling that if this army surrenders, the rest of the Confederacy may come apart. And of course, that is what happens in fairly short order. At this point, the, the Civil War is effectively over um, with the loss of how many thousands of American yes, lives? Yes. Hundreds of thousands. Hundreds of thousands. Of American lives have been lost. The, 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 the country, which is still then young, uh, less than a century old, um, has torn itself apart. Um, one of the things I think that's surprising about moving about Lee is is his behavior after his defeat, effectively. Uh, tell us about that, because I think this is a part of Lee's life story, which is probably perhaps least known. Yes. So what does Robert E. Lee do after the Civil War? Well, he doesn't know what he's going to do at first. At first, he talks about maybe trying to get a plot of land and be a farmer. Um, but something happens. He gets an offer to lead a small college in the Shenandoah Valley that's then called Washington College. Uh, and this college has a real connection to George Washington. It was endowed by George Washington uh, with a charitable gift. Um, but the college has suffered tremendously during the Civil War. It was sacked at one point. Um, it has very few students left. The offer seems very much beneath Robert E. Lee. If he wants to be the president of a college, he could be the president of a better college. There certainly would be other places in the South that would take him. In fact, there are people who would certainly just, in the South, who would certainly just hire Robert E. Lee to run their business just to have his name and he wouldn't have to do anything. But that's not the way Robert E. Lee sees it. He sees it as the cause brings dignity to the job. It's not how big it is, it's what can he do? And for four years, He's led the young men of South, of South in battle, and now he wants to lead them in peace, to prepare them for peace. So he accepts this job at Washington College. He rides across the, um, the Blue Ridge Mountains, takes the presidency of this small school. And today, of course, we know this small school as Washington and Lee University, and Robert E. Lee really puts his imprint on this place. One of the things that's striking about this is that he, he, he is 
he realizes the significance of reconciliation within the United States and the acceptance of the loss, doesn't he? I mean, right. He's not hanging out, hanging on for something else to happen. He accepts the defeat of the Confederacy and realizes that the United States has to has to hold together. Right. And in some sense, he's the perfect person to do this because his entire life has been about sort of su suppressing himself, submitting to authority. And he says, now that the war is over, the cause that was in dispute is settled. And by the way, it's important to say, I said he was opposed to secession hmm. before the war, but at some point he makes a flip-flop during the war and decides that perhaps secession had been legal all along, and he tends to forget his pre-war views. But importantly, after the war, he says, it's settled now. We fought over it. Hundreds of thousands of men have died. It's settled. It's illegal. And it's for everybody in the South to submit to the Union to and do the best they can to help rebuild the country. Now, some Confederates will say, why don't you do what your father did? Leave the country, go into exile. And he says, no, because the country needs me. I need to stay, I need to play a role in helping these young men. It's not a, necessarily a political role, but in a sense it is a political role because people are watching his example. And the example he gives at Washington College is very much about preparing people for civilian life, young people who had their educations interrupted by this terrible war. And the college starts to grow. People send their sons what becomes known as General Lee's College. Um, and he has a very interesting educational philosophy. His philosophy is very much vocational. He wants to prepare people for actual jobs that might be out there, including, by the way, I might add in a field that he really detested, which was journalism. Well, <laughs> we the, might be able to use some yeah, of that. So he, was, he was onto something. <laughs> <laughs> Just going back a second to that, I, it, it seems to me important to draw on that, that he could have, if he hadn't have taken that stance towards the victory of the union he could have he could have made the civil war effectively rumble on in some form or that let's say that the argument might not have been over completely had lee not been an example of somebody say it's it's done right no i think that's absolutely true the example that he set was very important um of course, it wasn't totally done. There was still violence that would happen. We know that Reconstruction did not work as well as, you know, we might have hoped it would have worked. And so a lot of these issues carried over for, for more than a century. Um, but, uh, you know, and there's some attitude now, I think, why didn't Robert E. Lee do, do more? But perhaps we're asking too much of this man who has just lost a major civil war. You know, it, he was not going to come out in favor of the equality necessarily that we have today, the racial equality, that wasn't necessarily his vision. He would have, if he could have had his way, Virginia would have, uh, he would have, he, he thought it would be best if African-Americans simply left the state of Virginia. Where did he think they would go? Well, you know, I think he maybe thought they would go south. Um, and he said, you know, he basically says, I've always been in favor of gradual emancipation. The Civil War has brought immediate emancipation. I'm fine with that, but I would rather have them not in the state of Virginia. And that's held against him today, of course, because uh, he didn't have a vision for of what we have today, which is a multiracial democracy. Uh, but perhaps we're asking a little bit too much of him, I think, where he was in, in 1865. And the important thing he does tends to get overshadowed, which was he accepted that the war was over. 
and he didn't splinter his army up to fight a guerrilla struggle like so many revolutionaries today have. He accepted Union authority. What was his view of commemorating uh, the war that the South had waged in statuary and uh, commemorations and much more? What what did he th- what did he think about the the legacy of it and how it should be remembered? Well, it's very interesting. If you look, we know pretty exactly because we have letters that came to Robert E. Lee saying, will you support building a Confederate memorial or a statue to Stonewall Jackson, um, who had died at the Battle of Chancellorsville and was Robert E. Lee's best lieutenant, without doubt. Um, And Robert E. Lee always has some reason for why now isn't a good time to do it. He says, if we build a statue now, it might make the victorious Federals angry. And then in another letter, he'll say, well, I don't think we can afford to build statues. The South is too poor right Mm. now. As to when the right time to build statues might be, Lee's correspondence tends to suggest he thought the answer was never. Uh, He actually gets a letter asking for his help preserving the Battle of Gettysburg. And Robert E. Lee basically responds that he thinks that the the battlefield of Gettysburg should have been paved over because that country's that hide reminders of civil wars tend to move on faster from civil wars. And so in some strange way, we end up with Robert E. Lee expressing a view, if you think about this very strangely, that is in line with people today who want to tear down his monument. But before we suddenly throw Lee's view today in the camp of let's tear down civil war memorials today, let's ask, what did Robert E. Lee want to achieve? Well, he essentially wanted to move past the Civil War and get back as closely as possible to how things were before the Civil War. He wanted to move on as fast as possible. And and as I hear the arguments today, and so often the arguments are, well, let's tear down the memorials and, you know, who put these things up? Well, the question is, what are you trying to achieve? Are you trying to just hide reminders of the fact that for a very long time in American history, Robert E. Lee was held in tremendously high regard? Um, And you can imagine a day 20 years from now, as these statues go down in various places, where people say, we never had statues of Robert E. Lee. They were Mm. never up. And that's because we've torn them all down. Um, And, you know, I think you do end up in a situation where the landscape is significantly less interesting. His, um, his reputation, posthumous, he dies in which year again? He, he died in 1870. 1870. Um, when do the statues of him start to go up? Well, that's a good question. And this is a point that's often given for why they should be taken down. They don't really start going up for another generation till the 1890s and then the early 20th century. This is the heyday of building Confederate memorials. Mm-hmm. It's a period of time uh, when the, the lost cause narrative of the Civil War is very popular, saying that the Civil War wasn't really about slavery, it was about states' rights. Um, and Lee is held up as an icon of this philosophy. Um, but, you know, this, people tend to argue today that it's peculiar, but of course it's not peculiar. This is the way almost all monument building works. We tend to build monuments a generation after a conflict right. because we're looking back we're thinking about our parents who fought in the conflict and we want to leave something. It's the daughters of the Confederacy and so on. Right, right. up statues. Exactly. And so that's when these statues are, are going up. And, uh, you know, they do get mixed into this lost cause narrative of Robert E. Lee. It's almost a Christ-like figure who made this sacrifice for the South. 
Um, and, you know, and today, I think the, the question we face today is, do you have to take down a memorial because you no longer agree with the position of those who put the memorial up? Mm -hmm. Because if you think that, you'd have to go through our cities and face some very difficult choices. We shouldn't have to necessarily make those decisions. When does the turn in Lee's reputation start, do you think? Because in the 20th century, it was perfectly possible for someone like President Eisenhower and other military leaders, for instance, to openly admire Lee as a military commander. Um, I think we'd be rather surprised today if the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff cited General Lee as, a, as president, because we've seen him now, we see him now in a different light, and, and we see the fatal decision he made and, and, and fighting with the South, leading the South. Um, but when did that change occur, that, that the sort of remaining reverence for him, for his military prowess, if, if nothing else, then turns a corner and actually Lee's name really starts to become right. very muddy. Let's well, go back to 1870 for a moment, because initially when Robert E. Lee dies, he is a hero in the South, but he's not a hero in the North. How does the North commemorate his death? Well, there are some, the New York Times, for example, will note what he did at Washington College, which immediately becomes Washington Lee University, and how he accepted defeat, and he will give him credit for the final five years of his life. But they're not willing to overlook the fact that he is a traitor. It's in the 20th century that his reputation begins to change, that people come to see him as a unifying figure because of the role he played after the Civil War in accepting defeat, and also his military genius. If you go back and you look at the correspondence of our generals who fought in World War II, you mentioned Eisenhower, but General MacArthur, his, right. his, his mother, you know, told him when he was a little boy, I hope you grow up to be a soldier as great as Robert E. Lee. Um, you know, and uh, it's, it's, not, it's not just that. It's, it's, it's Harry Truman is reading a biography of, of uh, reads a biography of Robert E. Lee. General Marshall is corresponding with Robert E. Lee's most famous biographer during World War II, during the actual fighting and saying, I am reading about Lee's campaigns and taking solace and knowing that the challenges he faced are greater than the challenges I faced. And so this is, it sounds surprising to us today, mm. but in a sense, these people grew up at the time that the statues were going up. They, this is the way they saw Robert E. Lee. And the statues, when we talk about tearing down a statue, well, what are we tearing down? You're not really going to erase Robert E. Lee from the history books. He's too important of a figure to erase. But what you are erasing is that there was generations that looked up to Robert E. Lee, including people who did very important work I would say in winning World War II. So you, the turn in the reputation, the almost entirely negative turn, is a very recent thing in your view. It's. I think it begins in the in in the 1970s and is carried on to right now. And Robert E. Lee's reputation is really as low as it could be. He is not respected as a military commander because people think he had the wrong strategy in the Civil War. He is seen as an icon of white supremacy, um, which you know is, is that is that accurate. You know, if you put him in context of his own time, there were Southerners arguing that slavery was a positive good uh, on the eve of the Civil War. Robert E. Lee didn't make that argument. He said slavery was evil. He did say it was necessary, but he is certainly not an icon of, of, of the John Cal C. Calhoun variety. Right. Um, so, but that's where he's become, it's now Robert E. Lee is no longer a man. There's no longer a Robert E. Lee story. There's only 
the sort of symbolism that is imposed on him from people today who have suddenly noticed these features in our landscape. And even uh, Washington and Lee uh, University uh, is uh, trying to uh, rid itself of Lee. It, Some either reputationally yes. or actually, we should get onto that. <laughs> well, you know, it's, th th there's been a lot of talk at Washington and Lee about the name. As I said, it went from Washington College to Washington and Lee University almost immediately after his death. Um, and it's worth adding that the college probably would not have survived unless Robert E. Lee had accepted, su surprisingly accepted that offer to become the president of the college. Uh, his name, you can imagine what it did for fundraising uh, and also in terms of bringing new students. And he's buried there. He is buried there. Not just him, by the way. His whole family is buried there. There's a crypt with all the Lees, including Lighthorse Harry Lee, whose body was brought there. Um, and so it's very difficult to sort of remove the people from the places in a sense. There's some talk of it, isn't there? I mean, the Lee Chapel has become um, a lightning rod. Yeah, I, I think, you know, it's it's it's... It's it's difficult to imagine, for me anyway, as someone who's spent time there, who's looked at Lee's papers that are there, that it could ever be anything besides Washington and Lee University, because I think it would be almost historically inaccurate. It mm. is It was General Lee's college, in a sense. He, he His role there was far more consequential than George Washington's role. They, there's discussion of his body being moved. Is that likely? <laughs> you know, I've heard I've heard talk of some people predict such things might happen. It is very difficult to see. It is buried below a recumbent statue of um, Robert E. Lee that sits in the uh, chapel of the Lee Chapel. Um, in a sense, you know, it, it, Robert E. Lee went to Lexington, Virginia. The, that is where Washington Lee College is. He went, rode across the Blue Ridge Mountains to be in the Shenandoah Valley, away from the world he had known. And this bid to sort of move on past the war, it would seem to be a very strange thing to unearth his body and to move him away. It would be a strange symbol, I think, to the country. There's an argument that we started off with at the beginning that uh, the sort of uh, iconoclasts of the current era, the people who want to cancel all sorts of historical figures, start with Lee and then don't know where to stop. But is it such a bad thing to cancel Robert E. Lee to to take down statues of him. I mean, is, is he somebody? Is he somebody we want to revere? Is he somebody we want to admire? Or is he somebody we just have to, like with so many historical figures, just take in the round and try to understand? Well, I guess it gets to the question of what do you think a memorial should do? If the mm. only purpose of an old memorial is to hold someone up as the perfect role model, there is no chance that Robert E. Lee can meet that standard and his memorials should go. Now, I don't look at memorials that way myself. I can say I wouldn't tear down an old memorial, but I wouldn't put up a new memorial. That's mm. an intellectually uh, yes. coherent position. If you care about history, then you don't go around destroying old pieces of artwork that were created by previous generations. As I told you, these statues came about at a time when Robert E. Lee was held in high regard by some of the same people who would defeat the Nazis in Germany. Um, and I don't think we necessarily need to make these choices. We can understand why the monuments were put up. We can put them in context without destroying them, without defacing them. And um, by the way, when did the last one go up to him? Oh, I don't, I, that's, a, that's a good question. I will tell you this, I was in, 
I, I've been to the National Cathedral, and there was a stained glass window in Washington, D.C., devoted to Robert E. Lee in the cathedral. That was put up, I believe, post-World War II, and that was recently taken off. And I, for me, the cathedral wanted just simply to, you know, say we can't have it here. It's holding him up as an ideal role model. But you can also look at it as the cathedral trying to sort of cleanse its own history. This was right. something, a decision they made in the past. It was there. And not and maybe this is not an acceptably intellectual argument anymore, but it's interesting. It's yes. interesting to go somewhere and find a Robert E. Lee memorial where you least expect it. It tells you something about American history that will otherwise be missed. And what will be missed is that you may not have grown up in a time when Robert E. Lee was a national hero, but there was a time when Robert E. Lee was a national memorial hero. And that is the history you're destroying by breaking that stained glass window. By canceling Lee, people are canceling part of the story of America. It's not the same thing as uh, getting rid of uh, Abraham Lincoln, but it's getting rid of a significant chunk of the American past, which Americans in particular need to know about and to understand and to get into some kind of context. Absolutely. You know, I've, 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 I, read, I recently read a book about somebody who followed George Washington's journey during as the presidency, and they were going to all these various different historical markers um, and admiring the historical markers and saying how much we can learn by getting out there and seeing where history happened. And then he said in the next paragraph, well, we should take down all the Confederate memorials, and I'm glad to see those going down. Well, what kind of, what kind of search, trout, trip are you going to take across America if you've just left what you want to see and torn down what you don't want to see? If you, if you take aside the military genius, what is it that, that we can learn from the life of Robert E. Lee? Well, I believe the most important lesson of Robert E. Lee's life is that decisions by individuals matter. And that's not necessarily a politically correct attitude today. We tend to say, oh, it's only about movements and trends and individuals don't really make a difference. We can substitute one white guy for another white guy or whatever else you might say. But Robert E. Lee's story proves that the decisions we make do matter. Because on the eve of the Civil War, he faced a choice. He could have had a very different legacy than the one he left. And in my view, he made the wrong decision. Mm. He should have cast his fate with the Union, but he felt that he couldn't. And just, it's important to understand that choice because it has very serious consequences for the entire country. It's a disastrous decision for an individual to have made. It's a disastrous individual. And if you look at the personal cost he paid from the house where he lived before the Civil War being turned into our national cemetery, that is not a coincidence. That is a decision that is made by people who are angry at Robert E. Lee for the decision he made. And he cost the lives of Americans who followed him. Yes, yes. And, and Americans who opposed yes. him. Yes, and by the way, there are people who believe, and if you look back at 1861, who believe that the example he set could have made a difference. If he'd have, if he'd have joined the Right, the, the, the that North he could courts. have sent an example for other Virginians. Now, that's not the way Robert E. Lee looked at himself. He looked at himself as having no choice. And what I like about the story of Robert E. Lee is that it shows that we do have choices. We all have individual choices, and those choices matter. And you can make a terrible choice, as he did, and do something, however small, uh, to try to make up for it afterwards. Not small, in my opinion, by the way. It was not a given. There were, as I said, there were Confederate officers at Appomattox who would have scattered the Confederate army. There were Confederate officers who would have gone off into exile and not stayed 
to tend to the education of the young men of the South. You know, we today tend to underplay those things, perhaps, because maybe Appomattox didn't do everything we would have wanted in hindsight. Maybe we wanted a century's worth of progress at that meeting between Ulysses S. Grant and Robert E. Lee. But what we got is pretty significant. We got the end of the fighting of the most important Confederate army and the end of the Civil War that would follow very shortly afterward as a result. If there's any figure, I think, in this series who uh, it's important to try to understand in the round uh, and with all the complexity, the wrongness, the difficulty, uh, if there's anyone who really epitomizes that difficult task of actually unweaving history, it's, it's, it's the story of Robert E. Lee. So Jonathan Horn, thank you very much. Thanks for having me.